0: Welcome to this episode of Conversations in Anthropology, a podcast about life, the universe, and anthropology, produced by David Bordagiles, Timothy Neal, Cami O'Dalley, Mithley Maher, and Matt Barlow, and made in partnership with the American Anthropological Association.
1: This month, we decided to do things a little differently. With the onset of the COVID 19 pandemic, The ways in which we ideally recorded episodes, face-to-face, was no longer tenable. We also wanted to reach out to some anthropologists who have experience in doing research during a crisis, as well as some anthropologists who have experience with digital ethnography. The result is four shorter episodes that we will release each Tuesday during the month of May. The first conversation is between Tim and Adia Benton, Associate Professor of Anthropology at Northwestern University. Aria is a cultural anthropologist with interests in global health, biomedicine, development and humanitarianism, and professional sports. She is interested in understanding the political, economic, and historical factors shaping how care is provided in complex humanitarian emergencies and in longer-term development projects, like those for health. Her first book, HIV Exceptionalism, Development Through Disease in Sierra Leone, published by the University of Minnesota Press in 2015, and which also won the Rachel Carson Book Prize from the Society for the Social Studies of Science in 2017, explores the treatment of AIDS as an exceptional disease and the recognition and care that this takes away from other diseases in public health challenges in poor countries. She also has two books forthcoming. The first one, tentatively titled Cutting Cures, focuses on the global movement to improve access to quality surgical care in poor countries, using it as a case study for describing and understanding ideological formations in global public health. The second is a short book about remote anthropology during acute crises like the 2013-2015 to West African Ebola outbreak. This great conversation orbits around the relevance of anthropology during a global crisis. Is Anthropology an essential service? Listen on to this conversation between Timothy Neal and Adia Benton to find out.
2: So I guess the the place we're starting with everybody is whether and how the current COVID-19 crisis has affected you, your work.
0: So I was trying to finish a book about Ebola actually in, in certain circumstances, it might have been the opportunity to get work done. You know, that's how some people think of lockdowns. But I have two small children, um, so whatever is going on means I'm actually doing a lot more for them. You know, it, it obviously would shape any kind of follow-up work that I was planning to do. So there's not a lot of field work under these circumstances. But that said, there's a lot of time to think and reflect on how this crisis manifests and, and, and all of the kinds of lessons that I thought I was learning from observing other outbreaks.
2: To that point, uh, what are the major things this is kind of challenged about what you thought Ebola had taught?
0: So I, I wonder if it's challenge except for, or as much as um, coming to terms with the fact that the US is ill-equipped to handle crises, health crises in particular, that require, I think, a lot of mobilizing a lot of resources and I don't mean just financial like economic resources but but human resources like you know one of the things that I'm used to as a person who's worked in lots of places in Africa and in, in Southeast Asia is that you can mobilize people um and you can mobilize people fairly quickly to be able to send people out to do health education, like mass, you know, scale up something else. Um, school shut down actually pretty quickly. And, you know, there are all of these things that seem manageable under in crisis. So I guess to some extent, what I'm seeing is vast, deep socialization to scarcity of human resources for crises. That's the first thing. So the way that we've, our state has devolved all kinds of responsibilities to us has also devolved a lot of sort of bad habits in terms of what we can mobilize. So that that's something that I think I'm learning, but I'm also thinking about how our problem in the U.S. has been, well, we can't, you know, we're trying to keep it so that hospitals don't get to capacity. That's what we're supposed to mobilize around, not having people get too sick to go to the hospital or something like that, like sort of spreading out our infections, not necessarily preventing them, not necessarily (laughs) trying to ask the questions about our health system and how fragmented it is. So there, these are questions that I guess I've been trying to kind of wrap my head around, especially because I kind of look at donors and international aid and all of that stuff and how that affects African health systems. And so it's sort of like, well, these are the people who claim to be giving like excellent advice to Africa or, you know, people who act in consultative manners towards all of these places. And we knew we weren't really ready and we knew we weren't prepared. And here we are sort of sitting in in our underprepared, hubristic, (laughs) inequitable system. So that's that's kind of what I'm struggling with or dealing with or kind of batting about
2: or, you know, think about the book that you wrote, HIV Exceptionalism, part of the problem you were identifying was what happens when there is a a major uh, health crisis is that kind of interests and, and resources conform around that, even if there's not necessarily a number of infections to conform around. Uh, yeah. Whereas in this case, in the US, clearly right now, major... Uh, amount of infections and 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 interest but uh, I guess what are you seeing maybe that's similar in terms of the social distribution of that interest or or is it completely different
0: um so I guess it depends on which interest you're so yeah we you know like
2: you want
0: well because I I mean I I was just thinking about someone had just written something like someone just tweeted something about um, the government's like insisted that insistence that we get open up for business again or whatever, get back to business. I don't even know. Um, and I was, and I was thinking, oh well, the interest. It's it's. I think maybe I'll put it this way. There was a moment when I was watching um, Trump's press briefings. I watched them off more often than I should. They're daily. They're at least two hours long but they're always on in the background and I'm yelling at my screen or whatever. Um, But there was this moment, this day that I tuned in late. And, you know, people were tweeting like, Oh, the MyPillow guy is on the press briefing. And I was like, that can't be like, why would the guy from the, my, do you know what MyPillow is? (laughs) No, (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Right. But MyPillow, not MyPillow, but the company MyPillow. (laughs) is this, um, (laughs) it's a guy, he sells pillows (laughs) and, and it's, it's sort of like your late night commercial, you know, late night ad that comes on and the guy's like basically hawking pillows, these like special pillows that make you sleep well. But this guy also is known for having been, um, terribly addicted to crack cocaine at some point and sort of, and his story is that he, um, I think he became a born again Christian and somehow kicked his addiction and now also does, so he does My Pillow, but he also does some stuff on like addiction. And so anyway, this guy obviously has a lot of money and somehow he is on state, like on the platform with the president and he's part of this deal to I guess he's supposed to, his company is going to be fielding phone calls or hand, doing like a call center or whatever because I was trying to figure out why would the My Pillow guy ever be on this and then they sort of introduce Honeywell and all of these other companies head company heads to talk about how they were going to help respond to this crisis and that that to me is sort of like that encapsulates at least or at least is sort of a microcosm of, of, of the current administration's overt um, submission to or subordination, subordination to capital, right? Like, it's not that no, you know, that he's the first US president to be, uh, you know, raging capitalist, right? But he's certainly the one to kind of say, this is, we're going to put our, our energies into, our efforts into, we're going to enrich um, other are U.S. companies. These are our heroes here. These are the people that, that matter. These are the, the entities that matter. So there's that piece, so like, and, and so oh, when are we going to be open for business again? When is Amer- America's just one business, one, you know, one, that's what it is. And the rest of us are just sort of workers making it move along. We're just cogs in that wheel or those set of wheels. Um, And so I would say that's those are the interests that seem to mobilize or at least um, structure this response, at least um, when it's articulated by Trump. So which isn't. And so I guess if I were to draw this in relation to other connections there or into other or previous outbreaks that I've looked at or epidemics that I've looked at. Um, Ebola has a similar, Ebola had similar logic. So while there were obviously leaders who were very much concerned with um, keeping the numbers down, preventing death and so on, a lot of that was in service of capital. So, oh no, flights are no longer coming in and out of Sierra Leone, well, except for one, the Belgian one that still is moving diamonds in and out of the country. Um, And also needed goods and health workers, of course. (laughs) Um, so, and then the ports were closed or open or, you know, whatever it was, there were a lot of different, um, and then there's, so we had vaccines that had been developed 20 years before, suddenly, um, testable, um, suddenly purchased by larger companies and masked and scaled up, uh, drugs, right? So there's like, you know, there's like the sort of mitty gritty political side of, how do you mobilize the resources to actually do the, do the work of keeping, keeping infections down, treating people, burying the dead, you know, shaping health education messages and so on. But there's also this other political business of, make, of ensuring the circulation of capital. And that's, that's just sort of like part of international health regulations. That's part of international health's um, primary balancing act. How do you make sure that capital continues to flow and move, while also reducing the likelihood that people are going to get sick and die?
2: You you wrote an article in 2017 called Ebola at a Distance, and then that you address how things like the Ebola outbreak are kind of, you call them diagnostic events. So Mm -hmm. they provide some kind of diagnostic of uh, many things, but including the state of anthropology, what we think anthropology is for. So one thing I've noticed is people beginning to reframe their research as essential, for example, Uh because institutional regimes of value at this point are saying, well, the only research that can continue is essential research. So this kind of calls upon anthropologists and others to reframe themselves as essential. Are there other things you've noticed in terms of this as a diagnostic event for where anthropology is.
0: Yeah. So actually I like this essential work thing because I I had been thinking about, you know, in my own life, like who, who constitutes an essential part of this now. Right. So Hmm. the babysitter, the grocery store clerk.
2: Yeah. I saw a a news story about uh, a guy who services printers as being, he's uh, been, he's, he's officially an essential service because he services the printers for essential service people.
0: Which, you know, at some point, yeah, like everybody has some kind of essential fun- most, Actually, most of us do not. We've, we've learned that most of us do not. The only essential function we serve is to keep the economy going. Um, <laughs> we have all of the even our funding infrastructure now. Um, so the NIH, the NSF, all of those funding institutions are saying, oh, anthropology, you're fine if you can come up with an essential project one of my the graduate students that I work with um, tried to put me on as a PI for this project and it was really fascinating. I said, you know, I think even though this is a rapid grant, I have a feeling they're going to have the same question that they always have, which is how is this advancing anthropological theory? And I was, <laughs> and of course that was their complaint when they got it, you know, and she, she had written it as if um, we were going to to actually Look at what constitutes essential work. Um, who are the frontline people? So we would talk to grocery workers and clinicians and you know her work looks at the intensive care unit in um, Argentina. And so she was saying, you know, let's talk about you know we keep hearing people talk about ventilators, but we have never talked about the fact that you actually have to know how to work one <laughs> to be able to, for them to be useful. and if you don't have personnel who run the ventilators, you don't really have you're you're only halfway there, essentially, right? And so these were her questions, but these are not theoretically interesting to the program officers who say, oh, we've gotten so many competitive applications. And I was like, really? Like, what could people possibly have to say right now? Like, that's so anthropologically interesting. That said, <laughs> um, you know, I... I just, I totally, anybody who gets an NSF rapid grant in anthropology right now, just if they hear this, they're going to be like, I'm totally, <laughs> I'm totally amazing. I have great ideas. We're when really on now. your
2: theorizing people.
0: <laughs> I'm not sure what I was going to do with that. Oh, it, that's a, that's a trauma article. That's like an article that has a story <laughs> that I, I often think about in these times um, because it is a critique of anthropology or at least the anthropologists who were trying to, to to motivate a response around this. And it was actually the first set of reviews were angry for reasons I'm still not 100%. Well, I know why, but 100% sure about. And even the day, like up until the day before I like signed off on the proofs, Can I say this? Because I feel like is, is it supposed to be like confidential? I don't even know. I'll just say the editor in chief called my phone about it and said, you have to take out this thing and you have to soften the language on page whatever. I had never in my life and you know, I'm actually not like, I'm one of these people who actually says lots of really rude things. And so I didn't feel like this paper was particularly rude. You know, no, I'm not rude. I'm actually quite nice. And I still think about it. Anyway, all of that to say, there's something about remote anthrop- anthropology here, but also that there's, um, that there's even a sort of, yeah, there is a politics of getting things done during a crisis and it doesn't feel right. Actually, it feels a little bit opportunistic. It feels a little bit, and that's part of why I really was thinking about using virality, all of its, you know, in all, in many of its senses to talk about this, because, and maybe I should have talked about parasites. Um, But there was definitely a, a sense that, You know, anthropology was injecting itself and trying to kind of reproduce and make more of itself in this situation in ways that didn't always feel right and didn't always feel helpful. I'm hoping that this kind of crisis, which is slowing all kinds of things down, halting a lot of things, will actually give us some time to not be working, to not be forced to have something smart or cool or interesting to say but if we can contribute, great. You know, and I think there are many lessons that we learned um, from that outbreak, from previous outbreaks. And I think there are many questions that are outside the realm of the outbreak that also need to be addressed, right? So like I said, what constitutes essential work? Under what circumstances are people made to labor um, in a crisis where we are actually, where doing essential work puts one at risk? For being sick and and the kind of the work that we're doing a lot of us are underpaid especially in the us we are underinsured um we have so we you know that these are to me these are the other questions that we can deal with and that we can answer and that we can work towards and work around the rest of us can actually just take a was, take a fucking break <laughs> like i would love, just just give us a break. Why are we working so hard for institutions that don't love us?
2: <laughs> it's a, a much deeper uh, emotional question.
0: Um, <laughs> hey, but I, this th- is I, anthropology. I,
2: yeah, but I, I, I think the thing that you're getting at there and that you get in the article that's so interesting is this real conflict that anthropologists seem to have about relevance, that we want to be relevant, but then we worry and fret about being you about being utilitarian or being instrumental. And what's been interesting for me. And I have to admit that I have taken the opportunity now and then to completely unplug. Nonetheless, it doesn't seem like anthropologists are rushing to take part in the takes industry or that maybe the takes industry has just, you know, the online takes industry has maybe outpaced us. So
0: that's interesting to me because and this is the other argument in the article, which was suddenly it's because it's it was in Africa. Everybody was like, oh, my God, we need an anthropologist. Has anyone seen an anthropologist? Please. You know, like I was getting emails like, tell me about the Mende burial practices or whatever. I think that when this was a Chinese virus, I believe you heard a little bit more from anthropologists and not necessarily anthropologists of China, though that did happen, but anthropologists of who understand the Chinese public health system. Um, which I think was actually really needed because it was this moment where I think I was actually really appreciative of hearing those points of view that were like, yeah, so SARS or let's, let's talk about SARS and all of the stuff that came out of that. Let's talk about the wet markets. Let's talk about the long history of um, how people talk about Chinese food and Chinese health and all of that stuff and, and sort of an anti-Chinese sentiment in the United States. So those kinds of questions were, those anthropological contributions, amazing. Um, I think there's plenty too for anthropologists who study, who think about questions of inequality, who think about questions of work. Um, and so that's what I'm saying. I, I'm seeing some of those takes, but I'm not seeing nearly as many as I would expect. Part of it I think is, Anthropology slavish slot problem. I do think that that's a part of it, but I'm also wondering if so many of us, and it's not just anthropologists, um, are just tired. <laughs> like, you know, I I can't tell you actually the number of times or the number of things I've been asked to write where that are hot takes where I'm like, honestly, would love to just sort of spit out 800 words about whatever is on my mind, but I actually have no bandwidth for writing a thing. I can talk to people all day, but I cannot put paragraphs together. And the fact that I have done that in the past couple of months about COVID-19 is a miracle. Um, Mostly because I'm, you know, I think, well, I was, if I'm sufficiently angry, I can write 800 words, but you know, like I've been too tired to be angry. That's what happened during Ebola, I'll just be honest. Like, I woke up every morning angry and I wrote stuff every morning because I was just like, this is crazy. I don't even understand any of the, the decisions being made on any of these, uh, on any side. Um, but this one, I it's like, you have to stay home. <laughs> you can't go, and you know, you can't do anything. Like you have to talk to everyone online. Um it's it's kind of exhausting. Um and I still have like two pieces that I'm supposed to write and I don't see it happening, right? Hot takes. But I do wonder the extent to which it's about, at least for anthropologists, that it's about, you know, unless you want to do something, talk about something exotic. There's nothing exotic about um like face mask at the grocery store. or maybe there is (laughs) rubber glove you know trying to figure out how how closely you can run without spraying COVID particles on someone right um yeah but those are anthropological questions Mm. right like about they're about social interaction and cultural norms about proximity and all of these other things right
1: You've been listening to another episode of Conversations in Anthropology, a podcast about life, the universe, and anthropology. This podcast is produced by David Border Giles, Timothy Neal, Cameo Daly, Mythili Mayher, and Matt Barlow, and made in partnership with the American Anthropological Association. To learn more about this podcast, find us on Twitter, we're at Anthroconvo, and don't forget to rate and review us on your chosen podcasting platform.